Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rabbit. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Now, amongst uh, the professions across the globe, um, journalism has been one that's also been hit by the sort of coronavirus, coronavirus issues. People are doing things in very interesting ways, writing about very interesting issues and sort of entering into um, a lot of fact-checking as we sort of encounter strange people who seem to think they've got solutions to the world, otherwise known as conspiracy theorists. Now, in order to explore, in order to explore some of the impacts of the coronavirus on journalism, as well as some of the other issues that have cropped up that people have written about, with Charlie Lewis from Crikey, Charlie, for those who uh, don't know him, writes a tips and rumours section in Crikey and occasionally dives off into other areas, which he can talk about in a little while. Charlie, thanks for joining me. Tom, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, before we dive into the pandemic and all the wonderful things that people like you and I have been looking at in terms of journalistic practice and some of the issues we've covered, you know, Crikey is where you are at now. Can you give uh, some idea as to what brought you to that particular juncture? Well, um, so I spent most of my 20s. Crikey is my first journalism job. Um, I was very, very lucky. That was always the place I dreamed of working. And I I managed to get there first time, which which is an incredible stroke of luck. Um, But most of my 20s were sort of taken up. I I worked a lot. I used to live in WA. So I worked at the state state government there in employment relations. I worked in the union movement for a while. And I think I had that kind of classic... Thing that happens in a lot of people's late twenties, where you go, there must be more than this. <laughs> this is a, this is this is fine, but it doesn't really fulfil me. And that was kind of around the time that I started thinking I might try and turn my hand to journalism. Um, so that's when I started studying there, and uh, yeah, that kind of went over about four or so years. And just toward the end of that degree, I, I did work experience at Crikey, uh, and was just incredibly lucky. I happened to graduate just as they were looking for someone to replace, or they were looking for someone to be a new reporter there. Uh, and I, I, I happen to have just done work experience there and, and I managed to obviously not completely buff it up because they asked me to, to come join them. So, and, and so I've been there ever since. And I, I've worked in various roles uh, at Craigie, kind of general reporter now. As you say, I'm the editor of the uh, Tip and Murmurs column, which is, yeah, a, com- a sort of collection of slightly smaller stories, kind of insider knowledge and things like that. Now, um, it's clear that and you know, people won't see this, so I need to need to explain the visuals to them. Um, we are both working from the places we live. Yes, yes. At the current time. What, I mean, how challenging is it uh, to think of the place you live as the place you work? Because, you know, when you leave for the office, you sort of walk out the door. Mm. You go off. You 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 see all your workmates, and then you finish you finish the day, and you go and and home becomes your refuge. How is it for? How is it now for you when you're working from home? And and it, does does the day bleed? oh yeah there's definitely definitely a risk of that and i suppose i mean one thing you probably you'd have to sort of preface anything about working from home with is that 
um, being a journalist with with um, with full time work is an, a very privileged position to be in, and to have a job that you can continue to maintain while working from home is obviously very lucky. And there's a lot of industries that have been decimated because they can't work that way. Or and I mean, and again, this is a sort of bit of a side note, but one of the huge reasons for so many of the outbreaks that we've seen in the last sixteen months is that people have got insecure work that they can't afford to not go out and continue to do, even if they are sick or they're not feeling well or they're at risk. Uh, so I should obviously preface any kind of self-pity with with the knowledge that I'm extremely, extremely lucky to have the conditions that I have. I mean, I suppose, as I say, I, and I, I think a lot of what you talk about is exactly right. The idea that the day sort of the, the workday bleeds into the into the personal life and the idea that, you're never, you know, I go and sit on my couch and I can still see my workspace, um, which is, you know, a very it's kind of can be hard to switch off that way. Um, and I think also the other thing that kind of uh, that is 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 very much missing since this kind of great shift has happened is, is one of the great things about working in a newsroom with a lot of people that you really admire, really respect, is just the collegiate atmosphere and the ability to bounce ideas off one another. The idea to quickly fact check with something when you're not quite sure if you're looking in the right area, quickly discuss a story idea with an editor. All of those things now take longer or are kind of uh, elongated by the process of working from home when you're relying on Slack and you're not sure if you can get through to someone on the phone. Um, That's it. I do think, I think in terms of working conditions, I, I do suspect that that in terms of working from home, that's probably journalism is one of the better jobs to have to work from home for because a lot of the tools that are uh, that, that you need to be able to do it are still available to you. Ultimately, if you've got a working laptop and a, and a mobile phone, you can you can usually get a story together. But but they're, yeah, with with all those caveats. Um, it, it's interesting you talk about things like uh, the use of Slack and whatever else in in a, in my situation. Um, you are um, you're in the case of what I do I'm doomed to an existence of being a professional nuisance mm. because when you're outside of an office climate um, you might submit something for publication but because the cohort the internal cohort uh, exudes a degree of power it doesn't matter what the organisation is right mm -hmm. um, you've got to be <laughs> it's got to be a pretty good yarn from a freelancer to make it in, firstly. Mm. Secondly, the communication channels the editor an editor's got uh, immediately sort of in the building, in their face. And, um, and it, it, it's amazing how long it takes to get the, the communication through. So that's an interesting point you make in terms of comms. Um, and then you flip it around and start thinking about the things you have now have to cover because isolation creates a completely different dynamic, doesn't it? Mm, mm. Um, I mean, Cameron Wilson and yourself have occasionally touched on. Um, let me find uh, let me find a description that's less pejorative than I normally use. <laughs> okay, uh, but um, let's call them. Um, let's just call them conspiracy theorists for the moment. I can. Sure, sure. Uh, mm. I don't think for more colour is required here. <laughs> but uh, what we, I think, what we've observed is a gradual descent into um, something that looks like you know, science fiction being viewed as fact by a whole part of the populace. Uh, 
How do you see that phenomenon from where you sit, having written about some of it, but also observing it online? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And like, I mean, uh, this was a point I was going to get into a little bit later, but um, I think like, like with so many issues that are suddenly incredibly uh, stark during the era of COVID, it's not actually that the pandemic necessarily brought them about. It's that the conditions that the, that the pandemic imposed uh, just shone a light right on them. And I think conspiratorial thinking uh, and its, its prevalence online is, is a really good example of that. Um, we have had for at least a decade, but probably longer, uh, very, very, a very powerful conspiratorial spiritual movement online that was focused first on climate change and that got a lot of um which then bled into the mainstream and now you now they now it, it's a very regular series of talking points in our only national broadsheet that, that that takes a lot of this thinking to be um scientifically valid then you kind of got it um with uh president trump especially focused around president trump in the us uh, a very very conspiracy theory led uh politician someone who's whole claim to legitimacy was that the that the um that the system that elected him was not legitimate and then he could rely back on that once he was actually voted out of office and we all saw where that led on january 6th with the with the attack on the capitol building which is also again this then has found very sympathetic reading in a lot of mainstream publications both in australia and and outside and it's also found a sympathetic reading with a lot of uh coalition backbenchers who now or, or former coalition backbenchers now in the case of people like Craig Kelly who, who build their entire audience on on these kind of conspiratorial um uh, I guess you could call their post fan fiction <laughs> yeah I think that you know that might actually not be a bad way to put it I mean I think uh, my sort of idea of him is that he, he's someone who does latch upon. There's a there's a bit of fan fiction on him. It used to be Tony Abbott fan fiction, and then Tony Abbott got voted out of power, and I think he just graduated to Trump. That's my that's my view, but that's that's probably by the by. Um, yeah. So as you, as you say, it's it's a real challenge, and it's getting worse, not better. And I'm I'm I'm, I'm genuinely at a bit of a loss as to what the the mainstream's role is in. Um, in combating that, because we have, for reasons good and ill, done a lot to to hurt our own credibility with, with people. People don't generally believe what they read in the newspaper anymore, for, for good and bad reasons. So you have now situations like, for example, the the anti-lockdown, which I think you know the anti-lockdown uh, protests in Sydney and in and in Melbourne were weren't just conspiracy theorists, but that was obviously a huge nexus of, of what organised that movement. You talk in that space. We can sort of touch on. Um, the the actual um, salad bowl of ideologies you get, and that, that, that's what it is. That's what it is. That's what we see. Um, people will converge, but they will converge for their own reasons. Mm -hmm. And the danger uh, that we face every time people say, well, they're just right-wing nutters. Well, they might not be right-wing nutters. There may mm -hmm. be people who are genuine libertarians. Um, or there may be people who are losing money because their small business is suffering or they've mm -hmm. lost a job or whatever else. Their motivation may be completely different to the QAnon kook, to the mm -hmm. um, anti-vaxxer. Uh, yeah. anti, you've got QAnon, you've got the sovereign citizens, you've got the anti-vaxxers, you've got the 5G is here to reprogram you and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all those things 
converge into something that appears to be a freedom rally. Um, the nuance that's mm. missing in the coverage or even the commentary online, it, it sometimes staggers me. Mm. Um, disclosure, I've had to read a lot of, lot of stuff from you know, extremist movements over the past four years. I, uh, and for me, it's a now second nature to try, try and weed it out. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how challenging is it to sort of isolate these things when you look at it, Charlie? To sort of pick out, pick out the, the the things that are present, and not necessarily overhype them, because we know. Um, um, that the people that are part of certain movements like having the name of their movement mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? How do you do? How do you reasonably? How do you do it? How do you cover this stuff in proportion? Is probably the right way to put it. It's it's very challenging. You're exactly right. It's a very very challenging process assessing what is genuinely in the public interest to reveal and what is merely servicing a group that that thrives on notoriety, whether it's good or bad. And, and I think ultimately it does come down to a bit of a, like a lot of journalism, it comes down to a case-by-case -case basis and a little bit of, um, I guess, your, your, your judgment about what these things do. I mean, I, I often, you've mentioned my, my colleague Cameron, I mean, I often see to him in a lot of these things because he has, like, like yourself, he's spent a lot of time in the looking at these specific groups before even they were being animated by the pandemic and when they were animated by other movements. Oh, yeah. uh, so he would, like, so often he'd be someone I'd want to talk about that kind of thing, about whether whether I'm doing um, good or bad work in, in bringing, calling this sort of stuff, uh, calling attention to this kind of thing. Um, yeah, and I think also just to an extent, just try, try, I think also the thing that we never like to really admit as journalists is that we have our own emotional reactions, our own visceral reactions to certain events that make us uh, predisposed to have certain conclusions about them. And so I think a lot of the, say, the commentary as you say, the, the, some of the staggering commentary about the the, 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 the so-called freedom rally, uh, completely lacking any nuance, quite smug and quite self-satisfied um, in, in, in writing them off as a, as a monolith group of, of, of nut jobs, uh, comes from the fact that maybe people didn't get their own anger. Because I, it's very understandable. You, you look at that and you think this uh, uh, Sydney is already struggling with COVID. This is not going to. This is such a dangerous move. It's very understandable to react emotionally to that, but you also have to, the, the big one of the big things about being is trying to disassociate yourself from your own your own emotional reaction and, and make sure that you're being kind of fair and genuinely objective, which is you know obviously the, a challenge in in every situation. Well, that's actually a good point that you've just raised because um, it comes back to this phenomenon of. To what extent are you, as the journalist, a part of the story mm. that's unfolding, right? And it's fascinating to just observe it, the thing. Now, you, things unfold in commentary across the board. For example, um, um, when I looked at, I've looked at the reaction online from journalists and others to the QAnon story that has been run, that ran on Four Corners, and we've done some stuff in Crikey on that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I've sat there and I've watched people talk about national security threats. And interestingly, I, I looked at the evidence presented in that with a with a rather privileged set of eyes, set of eyes looking mm -hmm. at it. It cost me something like $34,000, $35,000, but let's not go there. <laughs> um, but with a privileged set of eyes, and I've looked at it and I've gone, it would be nice to know whether a particular word was inserted into a speech uh, on the basis of inspiration or whatever else. But I haven't seen any evidence that tells me someone's a national security threat. I've just seen two blokes talking each other up on signal. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, yeah, and those are the kinds of things that occur to me looking at a situation um, with a different set of eyes, uh, education in a particular space, um, and also probably being 49 helps as well. Uh, I can't get a decent beard because mine grows, but <laughs> that's all right. You're lucky, you can. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty patchy effort, but I, but your your listeners don't need to know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they didn't. I'm starting to regret mentioning it myself. But the but it, it it's about you know the the perspective, I guess, and how you how you see it and how involved you get into the the actual fact pattern. How challenging is that? I've tended to try and look at things in as detached a way as I possibly can. <clears throat> that can be really tough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it, going back again, going back to the, the commentary on the Freedom Rally, I, I, it's a good example of that because I think most of the people who are paid to write commentary in Australia are, you know, well-educated people with fairly secure work who can't con can't conceive of any version of attending a rally like that that doesn't involve just complete delusion and conspiratorial thinking. They can't, it's, they can't, they may understand it intellectually, but it doesn't seem to occur to them at the first round. Yeah. And, and I suppose, yeah, uh, there, are, there are sort of other ways in which I suppose that that kind of culture has made itself felt um, during the pandemic. But I think we can, we can probably get to that, uh, yeah, later. What are the thing? It, we can get to that now. Um, what are the what are the what are the sort of cultural things that you're seeing emerge? I, I know what I'm seeing emerge, but yeah, it, I'm actually interested in um, what someone with a, a, a slightly younger mindset um, sees at the present time. Well, I suppose once again, I think there's the um, like I was saying before, the, the idea of, of, of the, the pandemic as an X-ray, the, the idea that it shows you where things are broken. Uh, one of the things that I think has been really interesting is watching the coverage of over the last sixteen months of just the, the general coverage of the political response to the pandemic. That's the thing that's really sort of preoccupied me. I think the um, the, the it, this has always been the case. Uh, but it really does become starkly available once you start really looking closely uh, during a time of crisis like this. I, I think that the 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 need of the of of the mainstream media um, to create and then perpetuate and maintain a kind of agreed upon narrative that everyone kind of feeds on um, has been a huge issue. And I think Scott Morrison 
whatever else one knows about him, has been an incredibly, has benefited from that more than any prime minister I can recall. I was just thinking back of, of this, especially in the early days of the, the pandemic, the, the way that the COVID safe app was covered uh, with, with most of the newspapers saying that, you know, you were the, you're an anti-vaxxer if you didn't want to give the government that kind of information about your whereabouts, or if you weren't a terrorist, you had nothing to worry about. Um, or the, the, the coverage of the, the collaboration with the union movement and how this was going to be a, a new accord. And there was an incredible reluctance to revisit any of these points when they turned out not to be true. When the, when the COVID safe app turned out not to have done anything very much to help us with the pandemic, no one seemed to go back to their old commentary and go, actually, I got that wrong. This wasn't that good an idea. Uh, when the government abandoned completely the collaborative approach with the union movement in terms of developing a new uh, reform to employment law in the response to the pandemic, and then put forward an omnibus bill, which was exactly what you would expect from a coalition government taking talking points from, a, from the business groups. Again, no one went, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to have an accord in play. Um, the the four-point plan from a couple of weeks ago, I don't remember the last time I heard that phrase, but but it was a big deal for, for a week and everyone kind of got on board with that. And obviously I'm not saying that the, 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 the journalists have been completely credulous and haven't interrogated the government. Of course they have, of course they have. And there's been lots of really great work in the last few years. I don't want to, I don't want to overgeneralize. But the the idea that um the idea was like latched onto quite early on that 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 the coalition had become, in the face of this this uh, crisis, a kind of bipartisan, non-political problem-solving unit, and that was all that was going to be going forward. And at every moment, I think we've seen that that's not really the case. And I don't know how much the uh, the how much. Oh, well, for example, I think it was it may have been today. It was definitely this week. Um, the AFR ran a piece saying what the real problem with Scott Morrison's response now in and what he needs to do leading up to the next election is to, is to stop being so apolitical and really get down to the politics of the matter if he wants to win the next election. And I think anyone thinking that uh, that the real problem with Scott Morrison is he's not capable of politics is a, is maybe a little off in their analysis from, from my point of view. Um, you, you, I think your call on that one is actually quite sound. <laughs> Um, Thank you, Tom. <laughs> if there is nothing, if nothing else, Scott Morrison is a political animal. Mm. Um, I don't, and we have all these discussions about the the Prime Minister's faith and the weird things people discover about some of his friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I sit back and I go, well, forget the King James Bible, go and Go and grab a read of Machiavelli and understand <laughs> how people work to win power. It doesn't always have anything to do with religion. Mm. Religion might be useful. <laughs> uh, they may have a personal connection to religion, but it may be completely divorced with the way in which they seek to attain and maintain power. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. I see the things as being separate and distinct. Other people might think I'm crazy, but that's okay. We're you know we're a broad church, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. But if we if we, yeah, it, it, it's. I think it's a it's about understanding the dynamic of power and how power is exercised, mm. as opposed to whether people think uh, politicians with a religion are. Uh, strange 
or weird or um, um, do use their faith in an inappropriate way or whatever. I don't, I don't see that as needing to enter into the conversation necessarily. Except, yes, except when it when it has a, a direct influence on on someone's policy, which to some extent it has a little bit with Morrison. I mean, obviously, but then again, I saw the religious freedoms bill, uh, which has been sort of bubbling away in the background for longer than any of us care to remember. Um, I suspect any any coalition government would would have embraced that kind of reform, and indeed they have uh, since since Abbott. Um, again, another person who's obviously been. Who, who, the detention between his personal faith and his political moves has, has obviously been a, a real kind of topic of conversation. Uh, but I think that was just more grist for the culture war mill, to be honest, rather than some kind of uh, yeah. desire to put in some kind of Pentecostal theocracy in Australia. Yeah, I, that's where I'm coming. That's where I'm coming from, which is um, exercise of power is an interesting study in itself, and I owe. I owe my knowledge of Machiavelli, by the way, to the fact that we did the Year 12 VCE HSC English team called Power and Politics. Mm. We, had, we had four books. Machiavelli's The Prince was one of them. Um, Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons. Uh -huh. George Orwell's 1984. And a collection of Nelson Mandela's speeches, which is no easy walk to freedom. Interesting. It's, a, it's, quite, a, it's quite a combo of, uh, of 20th century, well, not 20th century figures, but quite a combo of figures there. Oh, yeah. Um, so when you sit back and you look at the, you, you look at that as a, as a person undertaking year 12 studies, and then you realise it was probably one of the best things to, to happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> a little while, little while then uh, later. Also, in terms of covering politics, there's something else I've noticed. Aside from the the narrative, um, is what happens when the narrative gets broken. Mm. We've seen this in the past three or four weeks, when the term "gold standard" <laughs> all of a sudden goes. From New South Wales is doing it better than anybody else, particularly Victoria, to gold standard turning into this um, term that doesn't denote anything, anything related to success, let alone affection towards the New South Wales Premier. Are you seeing it the same way? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, th that was, again, that, that was... A very dispiriting, uh, and I, I again mustn't let my own personal feelings as, as someone who lived in Victoria during during the the, the big lockdown of 2020 uh, sort of colour my judgment here too much. It was an extremely dispiriting time uh, to watch the federal government. Um, really, that, again, I, I don't know if that was anything. I don't think it was anything beyond political opportunism um, to to latch upon the idea that New South Wales was. Was the gold standard, and that, that Victoria had had failed its people so so horrendously, and that's why uh, the second that it became even mildly inconvenient to to stay in the corner of New South Wales government, they were immediately ab abandoned by the federal government because it for me that was to do with nothing at all beyond um, yeah political opportunism, and I, I wonder how that's going to affect the the coalition 
in the next election, I, I can't imagine that voters, for example, in Josh Frydenberg's election, are going to, uh, in elect his electorates um, are going to forget him getting up on in in Parliament day after day, um, and and exploiting their situation for political gain. Um, I, I can't imagine that's going to be forgotten anytime soon. So as I say, I, I don't think that comes down to any great. Again, it's the exercise of power, like you say before. It's, it's merely, and and that has been a, another recurring theme of the of the Morrison government is merely putting as much space between himself and any kind of responsibility for things going wrong as could possibly be there. So, so of course, he won't take responsibility for the fact that he incorrectly assessed the the New South Wales government there. Also, I mean, to be fair to New South Wales, for the longest time, that appeared to be a pretty safe bet. They had, beyond all things, kept outbreaks to a minimum, avoided locking down. They had had a good experience of COVID up until this year. It's, it's to be, to be fair on them, I, I don't think that the gold standard idea came from nowhere. Oh, it, it, I completely get that. Uh, and, you know, better state management at that time in that context was probably justified some plaudits, but maybe not necessarily um, gold standard. Which no, no, that, 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 that was short-sighted and was, was always a risky, risky choice of phrase. Oh, yeah, it, things easily turn around in politics as well, um, very, very rapidly. And the other thing with the narrative is that what you've seen develop in the media as well is there was a, there was a tendency to comment on Victoria versus New South Wales over a period of time. Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, this thing happens in New South Wales. And then people have to reassess how they deal with it. So not only have you got people who previously pointed to New South Wales as the way it should be done, mm -hmm. New South Wales locks down and it's like, hold on a second, we can't use that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, Gladys has gone down the, the, down the rabbit hole and she's not coming out for at least a month, if not longer. Um, sorry to depress you, Charlie. But... <laughs> but um, it's how the media, how certain commentators seem to pivot. Yeah, yeah. They try to pivot, pivot their way out of out of a situation. So it's if it's not Victoria versus New South Wales, it's the feds versus the states, or it's the city versus the country. That is, country, the regional areas that have no COVID suffering, and the city that's got COVID, and you know. We're all in this together, but really, the regional guy should be let off the leash because there's no disease there. It's an interesting kind of dilemma. It is absolutely, absolutely, and 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 um, it, it it points to the fact that COVID, especially as we get more and more new variants that are you know more contagious or more difficult to contain, it's it's not going to allow us to have any kind of easy one fits all, one size fits all. Uh, narrative in place, um, and as you say, it, it's it's a very uh, attractive storytelling uh, motif, if nothing else, to have a nice, easy, clean conflict in the centre of it. Whether it's Melbourne versus Sydney, uh, uh, country versus city, state versus federal, regardless of the of the of the um, of the validity of that. Although the, the state versus federal thing is a very interesting thing, and I think that will end up being a very very significant. Um, that 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 that's slightly. Which is it? Yeah, um, that, yeah. That that that's a genuine point of tension, and looks at looks at the nature of our federalism. Mm, mm. 
But you said something interesting a moment ago, which may be worth expanding on briefly. And that is, it sort of, it does, these things don't necessarily allow us to have a ready-made narrative to hand. Um, why should we be able to have a ready-made narrative <laughs> to hand? It's a very good question. And I, I think... Uh, it, once, once more, it points to a, a, a fundamental um, problem that journalism, I think, has sort of always had a little bit, which is the need to generate um, a take every single day. There has to be, you, you've got to fill those pages with something. And, and um, sometimes it will require overlooking, observe. but there's a wonderful line in um, uh, Joan Didion's uh, she did a, a, a collection of, of writing about the, uh, the presidential election in, um, well, various presidential, presidential elections. I think this was one from the 1998 race uh, where she, she talks about various media events, uh, which she and a, a whole group of high profile journalists would witness and everyone would go off and write the exact same story and overlooking things that had actually happened. And she would say that everyone would overlook observable facts because you need to preserve the agreed upon narrative. Um, so I think that's always been an issue. Uh, when you have a, a kind of fast-moving crisis like COVID, it yeah. just makes that all the more absurd and all the more obvious. Absolutely. Um, it's also... you, um, And real life isn't that clear-cut. Mm. Um, not everyone that is painted as a villain is necessarily a ironclad boilerplate villain of any story. The real life is actually, um, as opposed to some certain storytelling, there's a, there's a richness in, um, in the tapestry of somebody's life. Absolutely, yeah. And picking off different things because they suit a particular line of argument um, is an interesting part of what we do but it's not necessarily um, the thing that we um, should be most proud of when, when the end product ends up being um, less than gold standard. If, yes. <laughs> it's a useful phrase, as it turns out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and I think, I mean, a, 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 another sort of recurring theme of of the pandemic coverage has been the um the ease of of reaching for a scapegoat the 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 the, the, the um the quickness to hit to, to latch upon to certain hate figures now I, I i i feel like it's pretty inarguable that the the things that have decided that have not been the objective facts necessarily of someone's conduct I can't help but notice that it's much more likely that if someone is um, working class or a person of color, they are and they've broken uh, COVID restrictions, they are much more likely to be identified and have their news their 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 face on the front of a newspaper. Whereas if someone comes back from Aspen, for example, to pick a random example, someone comes back from Aspen and hasn't followed That's the right. A random example, yeah. This is a random example. They they have their anonymity protected. Um, Yes, so as you say, it, there's, there's no there's no objective quality that, that, that qualifies you for villain status. It's often, or, or if there is, it's maybe one that we wouldn't really like to admit. Yeah, uh, Charlie, I, you, I'm I'm very conscious of time, and I'm grateful that uh, we've had this opportunity to chat about some important issues. Um, 
Is there anything else that you noticed about the way we report, reported stuff in the pandemic that's that's worthwhile mentioning that we haven't touched on? I think the only other thing that kind of really occurred to me while I was thinking about about having our chat was the an, an, another one of those uh, sort of absurdities of journalism, which has been just laid even more bare by the pandemic, is the the obsession with with being an insider or at least giving the impression that you're some sort of insider. The number of high-profile journalists tweeting out, in some cases, inaccurate numbers, or, or, or simply the, the vague allusion to, oh, I've heard the numbers are very bad today, which I can only see as, as, as a, a demonstration of your clout. In, there's, a, there's no public interest in a journalist saying, I hear the numbers out of New South Wales this morning are going to be terrible. That, what am I to do with that information apart from panic and think, well, that guy obviously knows someone in the New South Wales government. Um, that would be another absurdity, I think, that is very clear during the pandemic. Is, but is, that, that's something else as well that's worthwhile making a point before we sort of, uh, before we sort of get you to explain to people where they can find your stuff. <laughs> um, which I always do because finding your stuff is important. But the, we mentioned earlier, and I, I've been negligent and failing to point this out, but I'll do it now. We mentioned earlier that people move on from certain things very quickly. We've mentioned earlier that, they, and you've now mentioned the fact that social media has allowed them to people to have their own megaphone, mm -hmm. right? The part of the problem, and please give me a kick in the shins if you disagree, okay. um, I think is the way in which the current media climate tends to be shaped, at least in part, by um, people's inability to uh, have a longer attention span than that of the length of a Bluey episode. <laughs> then also the inability of people to refrain from simply relying on Twitter or a social media feed for an update. Mm -hmm. The role of social media, I think, in, in building up personalities of journalists as being bigger than the actual story, <laughs> as well as the role of social media in, in dumbing down discourse, I think is an area that we need to perhaps need to focus more on to improve our craft, that is to try and avoid that rather than perpetuate it. Uh, am I just being an old fart here or do I have a point? No, no, I, I think you've definitely got a point. I think I think the, the, the um, slightly schizophrenic quality of a lot of, of, of engaging with, me, especially media Twitter, on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I think what that's done to my brain, I, I hate to think. Um, and I think it also does, it, 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 it's, it, it reinforces a certain idea that a lot of journalism isn't necessarily for public consumption. It's, it's for your other friends in the media to, to read. It's, it's, it's letters between journalists and public. But again, I think that's a, I think what, yeah, I, basic, my short answer is I think you put, I think that's a, definitely a huge concern. Uh, I think a longer answer might, might require an entire another episode. Uh, uh, look, uh, you're on. We'll do that, <laughs> but and and then we'll plan for that. But I think the the other thing that is um, risky, and 
I don't know how you deal with it uh, in the current climate, but I think it's risky. Again, kick me in the shins if you think I'm gone off the rails, <laughs> right? But in the old days, story gets published. That's all anybody sees, okay? Mm -hmm. They don't see a journalist's tweets on what they've written. Well, you don't see journalists' argument between, um, you know, politicians about what they've written, or uh, in the way, of, or journalists' handling of various public comments on Twitter, etc., about what they've written. Does social media taint the perception of what may well be an independent piece of reportage because of the way people in journalism use it? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I suppose I've never been a working journalist pr prior to the Twitter era, so I, I, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't feel very comfortable making any broad statements about that. I mean, I think there's a certain element that what you describe, if it if it taints journalism, it also in a in a strange way has the potential to, I think, really strengthen it because you are uh, more accountable than ever in some ways to your readers about what you've reported and what you've claimed. Um, but beyond that, I, I probably wouldn't want to make any kind of big statements about that. I think I think there's there's, there's pluses and minuses to that side of of. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but it's an interesting thing that we haven't yet come to terms with, and that is, how does a viewer or how does a reader take what is written, you know, Article A versus Twitter feed, mm. and then put the two together and say somebody says to you. Oh, no, I, I'm more me on Twitter, but uh, my story is something else. And then people start to put the two together and say, yes, but you're clearly biased here, or you're right, clearly biased right. there. Mm. Yeah. It's, yeah, no, it's interesting. And as I say, I, I, I can see both sides of that one. I think in some ways the, the, having a better understanding of, of, of the the personal views of a journalist may be not such a bad thing when you critically assess their work. Uh, and But if, if someone's a commentator, um, like in St. Andrew Bolt, you fully expect to see opinion. Mm. And that it's not, it, it, it's never portrayed as being um, straight journalism, for example, that somebody else might do on television, uh, online, um, in print. Um, and on, on radio, obviously, or broadcast, or podcasts like this too. Um, but that's, that seems to be a convenient way to, to wrap things up because there's a soccer match to watch a little later. <laughs> um, Charlie, thanks for joining me. Where can people find your stuff? Uh, so I'm uh, published every day, or, well, every weekday, um, on at crikey.com.au, which is where you can get uh, subscriptions to our daily newsletter. Uh, and yes, I will be. I I do a daily column called uh, Tips and Moments. And then there's obviously the occasional feature piece of Guide Stamp. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to what Charlie writes. It's always interesting. Um, thank you for joining me, Charlie. It's been a privilege to talk to you. It's been great fun, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. And uh, no doubt we'll catch up again. Absolutely. <laughs>